You are now listening to the Jason D'Amico Show. We're here. We're, we're here. You're, you're here. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> glad to have you. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody. And as always, we got a very special guest. Uh, this guy really needs no introduction. I've got a couple of printouts here from the intranet. And, uh, I mean, look, multiple music accolades and awards, multiple culinary awards. We've got the link below for Wikipedia and other sources if you want to get more information on all this because it's, it's, it's quite the catalog. Has opened up for legendary artists such as Ray Charles, B.B. King, Stevie Ray Vaughan, Fabulous Thunderbirds, Dave Edmonds. Hailing originally from Gastonia, North Carolina, and good friend and mentor of mine, please welcome Mr. Mel Melton. Thank you for having me. Good to see you. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Been a while. So, we have a, a history that goes back over the last 10, 12 years with Papa Mojo's Roadhouse, and you know, I, I knew you as when, when I was a teenager, and always looked up to that was always my favorite venue when it was still Thank around you. and the legacy still exists today when we talk to other artists that are in the triangle area and have we always have great memories from good papa mojos and I want to say first before we begin, thank you for the legacy that you left and well, bringing people together like that. Thank for all the people that came in there too. You know we couldn't have done it without that. So and the uh, I still think there's parts of me that have fat from the fried shrimp. It might it might have a little bit. It was incredible, <laughs> incredible. I, I miss I miss that a lot. Yeah. Well, I'll give you the recipe. Just let me know. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, so beginning stages for you, uh, you obviously are well-versed in culinary and in music, which is a unique, that you don't really see that much, you know, right. as far as, uh, it, it's funny because it's like the two, in my opinion, some of the two most difficult businesses to start or be in, and maybe you're just one of those mavericks that's able to push through like that. I I have tremendous respect for you that you're able to do that. Uh, but beginning stages, what started first for you? Was it more music, more culinary, more cooking? And like way back, you know, let's say yeah, elementary, right. em, elementary school years. The You know, the truth is, and I've told this to many people, I never set out to make either one of them a career. Okay. You know, I, I come from a country family in Gastonia. My my mom had five sisters. There were six sisters. They were always cooking from scratch. My grandmothers, both my grandmothers, everybody cooked. So I was always around food at that at that really good southern cooking thing. Right. You know? And then my dad was a he was an operatic tenor, and he just never felt comfortable moving on to like the New York scene, trying to be an opera singer or anything like that. So he was a, um, he was a choir director. He taught music in schools. He had private voice lessons and he started me playing. He started me on piano when I was like five, just to like learn the basics. Gotcha. And then 
I was attracted to the violin. So when I was nine, I got a violin. I started playing in a local youth group in in Charlotte. But the, th- the funny thing is, he always played country harmonica, just for fun. And it was all these country songs, Oh Susanna, you name it. He didn't know anything about blues or technique like that. But he always told me, he said, I'm going to get you a harmonica, but I want you to understand it's a real instrument. It's not just a toy, you know. So right, he right. got me one, and I, I got on it right away, and I, I started playing all those kind of songs. And then um, when I got to college, I had a couple guys I knew, and they, they dropped by my room one night with a Paul Butterfield record and said, have you ever heard this guy? And I was like, no. Well, once I heard it, that pretty much messed my whole life up. Right, right. (laughs) I was like, how do I get to be that guy? Yeah, yeah. And then the cooking thing, I mean, I learned when I was in Louisiana back in the Cajun country, everybody cooks down there. And I loved that food from the Mm get-go. And so I learned to cook from, like, the Cajun families, the dads, the grandmothers, the aunts, the uncles. So that's how I learned how to cook gumbo and all that stuff. So it yeah. just it just fell in, and and I I went to Austin a couple times back in the seventies, and even back then, that whole market was inundated with musicians. I mean, all the Texas guys and mm-hmm. many others coming through. So I never could get any headway there. And in the meantime, I had put a band together with Sonny Landreth. In right. Lafayette, and and Sonny's like, well, I'm not moving to Austin. So if you're doing that, you're on your own. Well, uh, eventually I came back, um, but not before I had taken a job as a dishwasher in Austin at a barbecue joint because I had to, you know, I just had to make some money doing yeah, something. Yeah. And I gradually like got involved with the culinary thing and. This barbecue restaurant was out near the lake, Lake Travis, which is like big resort area. And all those resorts had European chefs. And they used to come in there for breakfast and lunch and hang out. And I got to know a couple of them. And they were like, you know, let me help you out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you out to my resort. It was a tennis resort. Wow. And at that point, you know, the guy convinced me. He said, look, you know, you've got musical talent. But you never know where that's going to take you. You've got culinary talent. Get in the local chef association, and I'll help you move up the ranks until you get certified. What by culinary talent was when this individual, whoever he was, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what? How did he see that in you? Was it just after you started working in the kitchen, or you just had a knack for it? In the well, early the, stages, a lot of times they would come in like sort of in a slow period and there wouldn't be anybody back in the kitchen except me and maybe some other person. So I would cook whatever they wanted, breakfast, lunch, okay, and, and got to gradually got to know them and talk to them. And, and so they're the ones that helped me out. And then the funny thing was it got to be around Mardi Gras one year. And um, this was before Mardi Gras and Cajun food and all that really hit mm-hmm. and, and Zotico too. And, they were wanting to promote like a Mardi Gras thing with Mardi Gras food. And the one of the owners said, well, Mel was in Lafayette. He knows how to cook gumbo. So we did that. And 
it got like uh, major news coverage in the Austin American Statesman with a picture of me in the paper and wow and that just kind of it just kind of went from there right know? right so you already had it really like you said earlier you the family background yeah with constant cooking so there was probably a baseline there I think so to a certain degree yeah I I, I would I would think so as well. And it's funny that you bring up Sonny because I had him written down next. Um, I read somewhere falling in love with Louisiana and you decided not to go back <laughs> to UNC. Right. And that was right when you met with Sonny. And uh, that you guys started. What was the name of that group again? Bot. Bayou, well, Bayou Rhythm, Rhythm was another incarnation of that group. Originally, when I got down there that summer, um, Sonny had a band, and the the friend that I had from Lafayette who was going to college up here had invited me down specifically to meet Sonny and some of the guys he had gone to high school with. Okay. Because at that point, I was playing some blues harmonica, and I was interested. Well, Sonny and I hit it off right away, and we kept that kind of core friendship group through all those years off and on all the way until I moved out to Chicago in the mid eighties. So, uh, and the first time I heard Sonny, I was like, what in the heck, man? <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, and the food attracted me right away. The whole culture is so different from anything you're going to find in Gastonia or in that area. Yeah. Um, that I was immediately attracted to it. And, um, I decided, I mean, I felt like my parents were wasting money putting me through the University of North Carolina. I mean, I had a, I had a goal of being a writer. I'd won some writing awards, but I never really had the discipline to just sit down and face a blank page and just do that all the time. What focus in writing? Uh, fiction. And poetry, I was I, I wrote a couple of poems, and I was in the North Carolina Poetry Society, which was is, is still probably a really good organization. But they had an annual uh, contest, and I w even though I was in high school, I won second place, going against like all the college students at North Carolina colleges. So. Once again, at that point, it started attracting attention. I got some some coverage, and um, and and that was always my intent. I was like, well, I'm going to be this famous Southern writer, and then, and I've got tons of writing. I always kept a road journal uh, through everything in Lafayette and everything. I've never developed it into anything, but your original I, music as well, too, right? Huh? Your original music as oh, yeah. well. Everything. You everything. know, and. Not to skip ahead on your timeline, but in 2000, you became an author with uh, Cookie Boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't, you know, I haven't had a chance to, to really read it or research it, but. Well, I'm looking for them. They're out there somewhere. Well, you know, that, that was a funny thing, too, is I had a promoter out in New Mexico, and we were touring through that area a lot back then, Colorado, all, all through there. And he said, um, he, he hired me to do a show at this convention center in uh, Farmington, New Mexico, where we would pre-sell tickets for 100 dinners 
and I would do the cooking, and then the band would play that night. Wow. And we would do that. So wow. we did that, and it was a big success. And and I had done a few things on a smaller scale. So he he and his partner were interested in wanting to know if I'd do a cookbook. And they, they had a publishing company, and they would they would do it. So that's really how that happened. You know, I was like, well, okay, we'll we'll do a cookbook. And, and it was good. You know, we, we came out with it. We toured behind it. It came out for Mardi Gras, but it was in February and we were touring like the East coast in one of the biggest ice storm <laughs> things that ever happened. And we missed half the gigs. You couldn't even get anywhere. So, so, you know, in, in the meantime, I've, uh, I'm working on a new cookbook actually. Oh, really? My second one. Yeah. And it's more of a, it's, it's a memoir with stories of all the restaurants I've ever been in with some recipes from all of them, as well as some of the uh, things about the music and the bands and over the years and all that stuff. So I think, I think it ought to be pretty good. I've got, I've got a guy helping me with it. Who's done a lot of that stuff. So when you're looking to release, (sighs) yeah, I don't know. I was hoping for, um, Mardi Gras is February 25th this year, and I was hoping to do it in conjunction with a new CD. The band's working on a new CD as well. I haven't yeah. done one in a long time. Yeah. So the goal would be to tie those two together because that's the way every everyone we approach with it likes that idea of, you know, you got music, you got food, you got the cookbook. You know, it's your take, niche. Yeah, we for can sure. Take, we can take this thing to festivals with the food. We can take it to cooking shows with the music, and and I've done a lot of that over the years. You know, Southern Season. I hate to hear they're closing, but I've been doing cooking shows there with the band for wow. like fifteen years. Is that the location of Chapel Hill? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it's unfortunate. That I had no idea that they were. Yeah, they made the announcement. They've, wow. they've struggled, and they're getting ready to shut the doors. I don't know what's going to happen over there. Wow. But I haven't done any shows over there. I did them all the time when I could when I had the restaurant. Because, okay. Because, you know, it was helping promote the restaurant. But since I closed, I haven't done any over there. So. Well, Cajun is, safe to say, the primary style for you and and flavor palette i love it i I think it's great you know gumbo and shrimp um it's just it's when those spices hit yeah yeah nothing it's got a lot of depth a lot of depth that's a great way of explaining it so there's a lot of flavors there's a lot of techniques that aren't they're inclusive into that area. You don't see them outside of that area um, with the ruse and the, the flavors and, and all that stuff. So, and, and that being said, that'll always be my favorite palette. But nonetheless, I was lucky enough, like I said, this, this first chef that I worked for in Austin was, um, he was Danish and he was like an, expert pastry chef and we used to make our own puff pastry and all this stuff when i'm not good at that either he 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 said i'm gonna let you go but you got to promise me you'll never get a job as a baker (laughs) 
So I, I was lucky. I worked under two French chefs. I worked under a German chef. I worked under an Italian chef. Wow. I've had some good Latinos in the kitchen that I've worked with. So I've kind of covered the bases, but nonetheless, you're right. That's that's my that's the wheelhouse for me is the Cajun Creole thing. What what would you say from a kitchen standpoint is the the most difficult dynamic? Owning a restaurant, running a restaurant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And that, that was that was kind of the, the response I was looking to provoke, you know. Well, it, <laughs> it all comes down to people. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, you, you can have all the skills, you know, you can have all the techniques, you can have the kitchen, you can have the facility, but it's the people that come through that door that work with you, that work for you that come in and pay money to be there. That's really what it all comes down to. And, and it's the same way with the music. You know, I get a lot of questions about how did you get into that? How did you get into the music and the food? And, and the only thing I can say is I've analyzed it and there it's a parallel track really, because number one, when you're a chef or you're cooking in a restaurant, you get immediate feedback. (laughs) As soon as that, plate hits the table you're going to find out if they liked it or if they didn't yeah and it's the same thing on stage you know it's either going over or it's not and then a kitchen crew is almost like a band you know i mean you got the saute guy you got the prep guy you got the salad lady you got the the fryer you got the grill and, it's, and it all has to be a team that works together and it's just like having like a, a bass player, a drummer, a yeah. guitar player, and all that stuff. So there's a lot of similarity. And the other thing is, it, it's the reason I like both those businesses or careers is you're in the business of making people happy. Mm-hmm. That's really what you're there for. You're there to the service industry. Yeah, to bring some joy into their lives with a product. Yeah, or not, or a single, or you know. Uh, yeah, and it's it's funny because along that line of thought, when I was an intern at Manifold recording, uh, Ian Schreier, who I was under, you know, the chief engineer there, he always talked about how cooking was perhaps the best analogy he could think of for mixing music and the recording process. Well, good. And that... Uh, he, I, I think that was like in 20, I was there for like a year, year and a half in 2016, late 2015 and 2016. And that has stuck with me for the last now almost five years. This is a great analogy, but it even stems further from that with the people aspect, not even just the technology and the recording or cooking process. Right. So it's always the people. You know, really, that's that's what, and I get a lot of young. I mean, not a lot, but I I get approached by these young guys that are going to chef school and want to. I mean, being a chef now has become like this fantastic rock star status thing. And and when I first started doing it, I tried not to let anybody know that I was wearing a chef coat. It wasn't some like illustrious position, mm-hmm. um, but looking at it evolve and I get these young guys that are on their way, they're on the track and they, they said, what, what would you say is the most important thing about 
becoming a chef or a restaurateur. And, and I'll tell them this, and I'll tell them straight up. I'm like, learn Spanish. Because I learned French. I, I can speak French. I can go to France, and I can sing wow. in Cajun French and all that. But the kitchens from, from like lower end all the way to the top drawer restaurants in New York City or San Francisco, they're inherently staffed with like these Latinos with major culinary backgrounds, and they have this drive work ethic. And you, if, I learn, if I knew Spanish, at least I'd know when they're cussing me out. You know? <laughs> I have, you know, every now and then I have a little hint about it. But, right, right. But uh, that, that, that's what I would recommend is like, is like learn, learn Spanish to help you out a lot. Yeah. I had my two years in high school and, uh, you know, it goes either way. It's like you're better with reading or you're better with speaking. I was one of those that was better with reading. Me too. And I had a Latin background when I was in grade school like th third fourth fifth grade somewhere around there for a couple of years and that kind of helped visually because a lot of the 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 stemmings were the same mm -hmm. and the tenses but not much of it really stuck but if you gave me a piece of paper i could if you if you dropped me in mexico city i i could get around but right I, it comes back you know, it might yeah. not be that great, but at least you can find your way around. But, well, that's the other thing in Cajun country back then when I was playing with like the Zodico guys, uh, they, they conversed in Cajun French. They preferred that. Wow. Too. So that helped reignite me learning it. And, and I, I spoke to some French guys about it and their point was with Cajun French, it's almost like an antiquated form of French that would compare to like old English. Interesting. Us, that they never picked up all the slang terms and the quick moves. It's just very formal. Interesting. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, while, while we're on the Zydeco uh, tangent here, let, let's talk a little, a little bit about with Sonny when you were touring with that, that time frame, that was when there was some of the opening slots for like Ray Charles, BB King, SRV. Yeah. Do you have any stories or anything that sticks out particular? And if so, if you could just elaborate on some of those. Well, we were we were very fortunate to get that stuff. And and the other thing, let me just say this. I mean, Sonny, good lord, nobody does anything like he does, and he's always been like that. But from the get go. We never set out to be a Zydeco or a blues band. I mean, you know, we were kind of like hippies. We were playing like rock music with with that flavor. Right. And that's kind of the influence we got. Now, Sonny ended up landing um, some some gigs with some legendary swamp blues guys, and and he toured with Clifton Chenier as well. Didn't he work with Knopfler a little bit, Mark Knopfler at one point? Yeah, he, he did. Okay. He did. Yeah. We just got off the road. Uh, you know, uh, Peter Frampton's got a new CD, mm -hmm. and he's got this neuromuscular thing he's not going to be able to play anymore. Wow. So this is kind of his last go-around, and uh, Sonny was like the featured artist on that. Wow, wow. And he's got a new CD coming out himself. And, uh, and every, I've done... 
I've done three CDs since I got out of Louisiana and moved back home. And Sonny and C.J. Chenier have played on all of them. And they're, they've also agreed to play on this one. Wow. So. That's, that's exciting. No kidding. That's exciting. When, is, when, when can we look for that? I don't know. We're in rehearsal. We, we've got studio time books starting January the 17th that I learned a long time ago. Learn the songs before you go in the studio because once the meter starts running, you know, you need to have all that stuff under control. So, unless you're like me and <laughs> you own it and you can do it whenever you want. Well, and, there yeah, you go. And that's the, that's the other angle. But I will say, I've there's some magic about the constraint of time there 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 and and how many and the the limiting of yourself there really is a magic there it doesn't happen until you get in there and i've never had the luxury of having material that we've learned and actually performing it live before we went in the studio and this is the first time i've done that and all i'll say is it's a double-edged sword you know <laughs> I mean, I talked to Sonny, you know, he was with John Hyatt off and on for years. And they went in with Hyatt to do a, a CD. I can't remember when it was, but he got them all in there and they started tracking this stuff with no, um, no rehearsal. And the understanding was they were just whipping everything into shape. And when it was all over, Hyatt's like, well, we got the CD. <laughs> <laughs> And, so, and that's not the way Sonny operates. He's, right. he's like a technician. Very, very technician-oriented, yeah. you know, it seemed to... Uh, so I think there's there's a benefit to both. Yes. It's good to at least know the chords and basic arrangements before you start walking in there. Yeah, so. for sure. For sure. Uh, so, so you left the scene a little bit. Uh, it says here in 86... And Chicago career and mm -hmm. full time career in culinary, uh, grand prize at Rolls Royce. Yeah, can't even read my own my own handwriting. Champagne chef competition. Uh, moved back to NC in 1990. Still working as a chef. During that time, were you still playing music? No. When I really moved, okay. When I the thing was when when I moved to Chicago. We were in orbit with the band. We had an LP out uh, on a label out of Louisiana, but it had got picked up by Epic. Okay. So they had taken control of the record. They had distribution on it. And we were on the road all the time. And we toured incessantly. And, and I had already thought about quitting the band because I was making some serious money as a chef at this restaurant in Lafayette. And, you know, the band's point was you can't just walk out. You know, we got this record out there. And we had a manager from New York City, and she said, well, I've come up with an idea. Well, when you guys go into whatever town, Kansas City, Providence, Rhode Island, whatever, we'll arrange for you to do some kind of cooking event to where you can do a cooking show or you can put something on their menu. Right. And we can promote both both things. And we started doing that. Well, we got to Chicago, and it was a three-band tour. It was us, Clifton Chenier, and Rockin' Doopsie. And um, they decided to have a gumbo showdown between me and Rockin' Doopsie. <laughs> <laughs> so we both did this gumbo thing, and then they sold it, and... 
at the end of the night, this fellow came up to me and he says, hey, I'm a, I'm, he introduced himself. He said, I'm an um, independent restaurant consultant and I have a, a radio show on CBS radio here in Chicago. And he said, I'm representing a group that's opening a new restaurant. And would you consider coming up here and being the executive chef? And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I would. But the other thing was, that night I met my wife, who I'm still married to for 35 years or 32 years. And she had come in with some girlfriends. She was from Chicago. So we started, based on that, just being in Chicago for two days, we started this, like, dating pattern between New Orleans and Chicago. Right. She, she was coming up to uh, Jazz Fest. She went to Jazz Fest every year. So when she came up there, I showed them around all this stuff. And she wanted to move to New Orleans. She was like, man, I want to get out of Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and then this guy, he, he said, well, will you fly up and interview for this, this, this job? And I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I went up there. I interviewed with him. Uh, I liked him a lot. But I just wasn't ready. We were still touring. Right, you know? right. I just wasn't ready to make that kind of move. And they called me up the next week, and they said, look, um, the head guy, the finance guy, is all family. Uh, he said, he wants you to fly back up here. He wants to talk to you. And I said, okay. Well, they paid the thing. They picked me up at the airport, went out there. And I guess they thought I was playing games about the money because all of a sudden they made me an offer, and I was just like, really? You're <laughs> no. going to pay me that to do <laughs> So I said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. And <laughs> there you I, go. I told, I told my soon-to-be wife that I had this job offer in Chicago that was quite lucrative, and I wanted to move up there. And um, the one thing she did is we toured in her car behind the band. At that point, the band was on a bus. So she went along with us <laughs> behind behind the band and all this stuff. <laughs> because at that point, they weren't really, they weren't that fond of her just because they didn't know we're number one. And they were like, well, you know, he this guy's going to be leaving the it band. It changes the dynamic. Huh? Yeah. It, you know. And, and I think they, I think especially CJ, he was like my brother. We roomed together. And, and I'll never forget, I flew her up to Aspen because we were there for a week. And I, I flew her up to do some skiing and all this stuff. So I uh, got her. I brought her this little boutique hotel, and I got her in. I wanted to keep everything real low-key. But when we got on the elevator, CJ was in the lobby on the couch. And he saw it, and he went, now that's going to be some real trouble right there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then he even finally he said, well, Mel, can I ask you something? I said, well, he said, why would you be flying a girl from Chicago up to Aspen with all these ski bunnies running around? <laughs> he said, that's got to be something serious going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, everybody, it, it made, was. everybody yeah. made their peace with it. And, and I told Sonny after it was all over, um, I said, probably the best thing that ever happened to you was for me to leave the band because at that point, CJ left too because his father had died, Clifton had died, and mm -hmm. he took over his dad's band. That left, that left Sonny with a trio, and he wasn't used to doing any of that. He didn't sing at that point. Um, and that manager we had in New York got him an audition with John Hyatt. He was looking for a new band, and... 
Sonny and, and that rhythm section got hired wow. and they stayed with high. And that really, that supercharged his career. Not that it wouldn't have happened anyway, but that right. was, a, that was an immediate, uh, opportunity for him. So, and, and like I said, man, we've stayed friends. I mean, he stayed at my parents' house and I stayed at his mom's house. You know, when I'd go down there, she, she knew the sandwiches I liked, so she would make them up and put them in the refrigerator with my name on them. And stuff. <laughs> so it was really kind of like a big family down there. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, that's great that you guys are still in touch. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. There was a little bit of a learning curve there, but we all, mm-hmm. we all stuck together. Well, 95 comes around and Mel Melton and the Wicked Mojo. So you moved back to North Carolina around 1990. Yeah, 91. 91. Okay. So Wikipedia is a little bit off. Yeah, 90, 90, something like that. Something around there. And once again, it was just this kind of opportunity. At that point, I had not played a lick of harmonica from the time I moved to Chicago. Wow. And I was going out and hearing all the hot shots, and they were like, man, why don't you come on out? And I, I just felt like I had left that whole thing behind. And um, I was in a, a chef association called the Chain Rotissiers. It's like this kind of glamorous group of food executives. And one of the guys uh, who was directing it was the vice president of operations for a hotel chain. And he was like, "Uh, you're from North Carolina, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, we're moving back there. I'm getting ready to take over a hotel in Chapel Hill. And they've lost some of their mobile five-star diamond status. And I need a right-hand man. Would you be interested in coming up, coming back to North Carolina and helping me with this project? So once again, everything just fell in place. The money was great. We Mm -hmm. I had a son. He was like between one and two years old. I knew I didn't want to raise a family in downtown Chicago because I had friends doing it. And it was like, man, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. You know? And my parents were struggling with their health. Mm -hmm. They lived in Hillsborough. So we made the decision to move back. And then, uh, then I did it. And, and then Sonny came through when he was playing at cat's cradle and he asked me to come out and sit in with him. And there was a guy there that had a record label out of Chapel Hill, New Moon Music, mm-hmm. Randy Friel. Mm-hmm. And he pulled me aside, and he was like, so, so he said, so you live here now? And I said, yeah. And he said, man, would you, would you be interested in, he said, do you have any other uh, songs? Because, I, you know, Congo Square was going to town. Right, right. And uh, I said, yeah, I got, I got a lot of them. And he said, well, why don't you come over to the studio? I went over there, we talked, and... And he said, well, I'd like to do a record with you, um, but I need to know that you'll tour behind the record. And I said, no, I won't. You know, I said, I'm not going back out on the road. I don't want to do that. And then there was a time frame that went by, and I started talking to my wife about it. And she was like, well, you know what? Now would be a good time to do that if, if, you know, if you want to do it. You know, we're secure. We, we got a home in downtown Hillsborough. I got... I got the sun and, you know, your family's right here and you can go out and do that. So we did that. And then at that point, yeah, I've been, I've been back out there ever since off and on. And, uh, that record, uh, well, actually it was the, 
Swamp Slinger. That got top 10 blue CD in the Washington Post. Yeah, it did. Wow. I know. That's awesome. We played a lot in Washington, D.C. that year. <laughs> that's we were that's both, great. We were both, I'll tell you what, it came out when we were going into D.C. and playing at this club, and the owner of the club brought me, and he said, have you seen this? And I was like, no, I have not. And, um, and yeah, that was real helpful. So, uh, so you guys kept playing for a while then. Uh, walk me through how Papa Mojo's came about oh, in, boy. in the yeah, 2000s. And once again, that's, that was an accident. Uh, <laughs> well, here's the thing. We were touring, and I'd had a friend. The guy went to Duke. He was from New York City, very wealthy family. Mm-hmm. And we hadn't seen each other in a long time, and the band was playing the New York State Blues Festival. And I got a call at the hotel, and it was him. And he said, is this the Mel Melton that played harmonica in Chapel Hill back in the day? I was like, I don't think there's anybody else. (laughs) So he wanted to come out with his wife and see the band, which he did. And he was a a filmmaker at a pretty high level out of Hollywood and New York. And he was working on a Civil War documentary film. And part of the places he wanted to cover was around where I live in Caswell County because there was a lot of stuff going on there back back in that time. Right. And um, he was going to be down there for a couple of weeks. And I said, well, why don't you just come and stay at my house? You know, I've got an extra bedroom. I've got a cabin out back. So he did. And at that time, there was a group out of Richmond that wanted to open a Cajun restaurant. And they wanted to hire me to come up there and open this restaurant in Richmond. And I really didn't want to do it. But he was around all the time when they were calling. I was talking to him on the phone. And he said, well, what, what do you, what's this thing about Cajun restaurants? He said, I thought you were a musician. And I was like, no, I've been a chef for a long time. I've been doing this stuff off and on. And right away, he said, well, let me tell you something. Don't talk to anybody i'm your guy he said i got the money i'll bankroll you you know you want to open a cajun restaurant nightclub whatever um wow i'm there for you (laughs) so he said do you have anything specific i said yeah this was a long time ago before any of this stuff broke i said i've had this idea for like a combination cajun cooking music show that could be televised to where you could bring musicians on to cook and bring cooks on to play music and just make it this this deal so he said well, i'm going to put something together we're going to fly out to hollywood and we're going to pitch this thing and we did wow and we flew out there <laughs> and it was pretty amazing i mean the people we met but he refused to relinquish any control over any of the production and right. these guys in hollywood were like they, they yeah they want well one guy pulled me aside um, and he said, can I ask you something? I said, yeah. He said, what, what's your tie in with this guy? And I said, well, he's an old friend of mine. And I said, and he's, he's the money guy. He's bankrupt. <laughs> he said, the he's, money guy. Yeah. He said, well, let me tell you something. We don't need his money. Right. We got money out here. Right. And I said, well, here's the difference is I've been knowing the guy since 1968. I've been knowing you for like four days. So I'm going to stick, hmm. I'm stick with him. So, yeah, and the guy told me, so I'm going to tell you something. You pitched a hot idea out here. 
and it's a winter. And he said, if you go back to North Carolina and you don't do it, somebody's going to do, do it. it. Somebody's going to do yeah. it. And it has been kind of. Well, we've seen it over the last. You've seen the way it's 15, happened. There's some years shows that have happened yeah. like that. So, so then, you know, we, we went ahead and cut a new CD in New Orleans. Um, and he was part of that. He was like one of the producers on that. And then it got down to this Papa Mojo's Roadhouse thing. Um, because I had named the record Papa Mojo's Roadhouse with the logo of this swamp nightclub out in the middle of nowhere. And he said, well, why don't we really open one? Let's really, let's really do one. I've got, he said, I've got real estate all the way down the East Coast. He said, you get one of these going and we could open like several down the East Coast. And, you know, you could book bands in all of them and feed them on down to Florida and that was the that was the the mission with that project. It was never to have one gumbo shack in Durham. It was always proposed that we would advance it and make it something that could be duplicated. But a lot of bad things happened. I mean, he had some major health stuff mm. that he almost bailed out. Okay. Um, and you know, he he was his family and his physicians had said he's got to get away from any of this action stressing him out and everything so so we had not opened another one since then we looked at some offers that didn't come together and then the lease was coming up and he had already left and and i could not run what he was running and what i was running right right and you know the lease came up and i was like you know that's about enough of this stuff i've been there almost eight years and i lived like you know, it was a 90-mile round trip for me every day to go to the restaurant and back. So, yeah. So you know, the game plan was I talked to my wife and my family, and they were like, take off a couple months and before you get into anything. Because I had a lot of offers in downtown Durham right off the bat before it blew up the way it is now. And I'll be honest with you, after I'd been off a couple of months, I realized I just didn't have, I didn't have that energy or that drive to do another project like that because it's uh it just takes so much time and energy to do that you know it it it, it in any business especially that one oh yeah you know so so since then i've been doing this doing that uh, like i said we're doing a new record the band's played um uh, we've been to We've been to Europe once. I went over there last year by myself and my wife and hooked up with some musicians over there and we got some we got something going on with that. And then um I I just inadvertently picked up these restaurant consulting projects where people came to me and said, Look, I need somebody that can do this, that and, and it seems like one's led to the other. I haven't hung a shingle up saying Mel Melton restaurant. It's just word of mouth. Yeah, and if yeah. you do one right, then you got another one waiting. So so that's what I've been doing. And normally when I meet with them, the first thing I try to do is talk them out of it. You know, <laughs> it's like, why in the world do you want to do? Normally it's, it's interesting. It's a lot, most of the people that get in it have been very successful in some business, real estate or wholesale marketing or whatever and then they decide they want to do the restaurant well the restaurant business is like no other business and unless you really know the steps it's uh it ain't that much fun so 
But at the end of the day, if they decide they want to write me a check, I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, real quick, I've got Bobby Flay down here in 2008. You got what? Bobby Flay presented you with the oh, Casual yeah. <laughs> Dining First Place Award with that. Uh, I guess that was with Papa Mojo's, right? Yeah. Yeah. We were named the... Uh... I never even knew that. And yeah, I was that, there. I was there during that time. The North Carolina Agricultural Commission, the marketing, had this contest, and it was best in the state. And you could either go in the casual category or the fine dining category, and you would submit like a complete menu, you know, with a, a dessert. Well, you had to you had to pick your main category, right? Appetizer, whatever, right? So I came up with something, and um, I got a call saying, uh, you won it. You won the grand prize. Wow. <laughs> so I was like, well, there you go. That's good. And then it was, uh, was going to be announced at, um, I can't remember, some ballroom or something. <laughs> well, Bobby Flay was the presenter. Okay. So everybody came out there and... And Bobby, and the thing about Bobby, I, I, I didn't know Bobby. I've, I've watched him on TV, and my my presumption was he seems a little bit hard edged, you know. He seems a little bit New York over the top, kind of like him. an act, almost, yeah, yeah. You know, but the, the reality is he's one of the sweetest guys I yeah, ever met. Yeah, you know, I guess he just doesn't want people to to know that. And then he came out, you know, while he was in town, um, and you know that was that was a beautiful thing. And then. Not too long after that, Anthony Bourdain was coming in to do a show at Deepak, mm -hmm. and he called a friend of mine who owned a, a really good uh, French restaurant uh, downtown, and he said, look, I want to have a party after the show at Deepak, but I, I want food people and mu music people. I don't want press there. I just want to get in there and have fun. So I was one of the guys that... that I got called to go down there, and I got to hang around with uh, Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. And, yeah, he was a nice guy. Yeah. Funny guy, too. <laughs> Very sharp individual. So, God bless him. Well, we've got a couple other things here real quick. I, I do want to ask you this. Uh, it's safe to say, wh whether you want to admit it or not, you're obviously an entrepreneur. Now, whether you wanted to be or not, I don't know. Because it sounds like you just, there were opportunities that percolated and you just grabbed them. Yeah, they just came up, you know, like that Rolls Royce Krug champagne thing. We got, we were only, we were one of 18 chefs to even get an invitation for this. Wow. Thing. And it was at the McCormick family steeplechase farm and it was hoity toity. And, I ended up winning the grand prize. I, nobody could believe it. I couldn't. But at that point, my sous chef and I were in the back drinking champagne. We were getting messed up. <laughs> <laughs> and my wife was like, Mel, Mel, they're calling your name. Get up there. <laughs> so, yeah, it just seems like it's been uh, just like in the right place at the right time sometimes, not all. Sometimes, yeah. But for now, I mean, I don't know. Uh, like I said, I, I told you, I I turned 70 in August, and uh, I know I'm in the twilight of whatever I want to do. I just want to make everything make sense and, and be valuable for, as, as far as I can, you know. But what would you what would you suggest to the younger uh, 
listeners and viewers as far as entrepreneurship and following your gut perhaps any 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 advice for them well i would think follow your gut you know follow your soul follow your calling um and don't get discouraged you know because there's gonna be you're gonna stumble so but just if you believe in it just keep doing it and don't give up on it whatever it is right do the best you can at it and get up every day and do the best you can every day and respect everybody and and you know be a good person yeah you know a lot of power in that for sure we've got a little thing here that i like to do at the end it's called the shootout which is basically i just say a word and you you kind of popcorn off the first thing that comes to mind. It could be a, another word or a sentence or just like a very short answer back. Okay. Harmonica. Real. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> washboard. Rub board. Okay. Cajun. Acadien. Ah, that's legit. Louisiana. Amazing. Mm. North Carolina. My home. Yeah. Same here. Fried. Fried? Everything's good. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta say, I got I got turned on to fried pickles. Uh, did you do Did you do fried pickles at? I don't. Papa I think Mojo's? we may have done them as a special one okay. time because I had just discovered them. But yeah, I never had them on the menu. Pretty damn good. Dead gum right there. God, the ranch dressing, you know. Yeah. Studio. Work. Mm. Live. Fun. Ah, okay. Vocal performance. You never know. Ooh, I I gotta I gotta I gotta probe a little bit with that one, just a little bit more. What what elaborate just a touch on that? Well, it, it I mean, it really depends on a lot of things. The the thing I've noticed is the more I play, the stronger my voice gets. And when I start downsizing and not playing that many gigs and then going back in and starting playing live, it's like you lose that muscle. You lose that tone. It's almost like going in the gym. Yes. The more you work out, the stronger you get. As yes. soon as you quit. So I have to work my way back up to that level with the vocal thing. Gotcha. And can relate. Uh, touring. Say what? Touring. Been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> Band. Wow. I've got a good one. Oh, for damn sure. Yeah. Restaurant business. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Music business. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Our last one, blues. It's infinite. There you have it. 
Last question, which is similar to what I just asked you earlier, but it's even a little bit more specific. If you could go back in time to your 15-year-old self, knowing what you know now and the experiences that you've had, what would you tell him? I'd say go to college and go to law school. <laughs> no, I would say the same thing. Just uh, I really think stay stay true to your Stay true to your calling. The one thing about my father, like I said, he was an operatic tenor and classically trained. And and when I started playing harmonica um, as, as a as a career as a musician, he and my mom flew down to Louisiana to check everything out. And then when he heard the band and he heard me play, he said, "I would never tell you not to do that." Yeah. So. He said, if that's, that's what you want to do, do it. Yeah. Just do it right. So, yeah. Because I really wasn't that good on the violin anyway. <laughs> How long did you play violin for? I started when I was nine and I played until, I guess I played up until high school. Okay. When I was nine, we were in Charlotte and I was in a youth symphony. Right. And I love that. When we moved to Gastonia, I had individual lessons and I never really liked that. And the other thing, just as an aside, is, her, you know, my family has a hereditary neuromuscular disease. It's a form of muscular dystrophy. And all the males in the family have gotten it. And, uh, and it's progressive, and it affects the extremities, your hands, your feet, uh, your toes and everything. And I have had to have some major surgery relating to that from the time I was 13 up until a couple years ago. And the uh, neurologist that I had said, you know what? You're lucky that you picked the harmonica. He said, because there's no way you'd ever be able to play piano or violin or any stringed instrument at that level. Wow. Because you just don't have the, you don't have the muscle and the nerves anymore. So. Wow. So I got lucky with that one. At least I can still hold one. That's. <laughs> wow. Well, that's it's it, your story is very inspiring, and again, thanks so much for making the drive. Thank out. you. It was good to see you. It's good to have you here, and we'll put in the description box on YouTube all the information and the okay. links for. And you can feel free to send me anything that we didn't cover on the phone call or here well, same today. Same here. And um, <clears throat> we'll just kind of head our way out. Thank you guys for watching as always. And again, description box below. Look out for this guy because he's still kicking. And he's still <laughs> he's he's still beating ass with his music. And uh band is incredible. They really always are. always enjoy seeing you guys thank live. You. And uh same to you. Well, thank you. And no. thank thank you again for giving me an outlet and a platform in my teen years. Because we played Papa's many times and between open mics and actual shows. And that was that was the early development stages for me as a front man. Well, and let me tell you, the first time you did it and I was there and I heard you, we were just like, who is this guy? Because we got a lot of youngsters coming in there wanting to... And, and that was part of the thing. But there were several that had a talent level, but none of them approached yours. So... Wow. To have you in there at that age. Coming from you, that means a lot. Well, I really. It's true. Thank you. Thank You're you. You're welcome.
I guess we'll end on that note. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And we'll see you on the next one. Peace.